0: And this witness saw that the gunners were still at their stations and firing. And I guess they knew they couldn't escape or they couldn't survive it. And so as the plane went underwater, he said, I just watched the guns still firing below the water. He could just see the the bullets go until it finally submerged. And um, all the men were killed, I think, except maybe one.
1: The Stories Behind the Stars podcast. This podcast is run by the organization Stories Behind the Stars. This has nothing to do with Hollywood. We are telling the stories behind the stars that were given in World War II. For those of you who are not, family received a gold banner. A banner. The family received a banner with a gold star on it. We are telling the stories behind these stars. Our goal is to put them all 400,000 into a common database, which then we will build a smartphone app that will be searchable from any location where you can read the story behind the star job on the home front and died in a plane crash. This podcast is dedicated to telling those stories as we find them, as our researchers are doing this amazing research. You'll hear from researchers who are all volunteers from all across the country, and you'll hear their story, what brought them to the project, and then also the stories that they're finding. This is amazing content, and I really hope you enjoy this adventure. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today, we have author and researcher Rona Simmons with us. Can you take a minute and introduce yourself and and tell us about your research, your writing, and what brought you to this project?
0: Sure. Thank you so much. I think we talked, oh, six months ago, Um, but I've been with uh, Stories Behind the Stars since uh, 2020. I think I was one of the early joiners. And I joined because I love to do research and I love to do research about World War II. I was writing at the time a book called The Other Veterans of World War II. So I was in the midst of a lot of research about people who might be um, not as well known as others, whether they survived the war or not. So it was um, really kind of a match, I'll say made in heaven or made on the internet um, to to join in and and work uh, with Don and and the group around the world. And so I dove in and um, did quite a number of stories. And then we started doing uh, the projects on D-Day and uh, Pearl Harbor. And again, um, after my first book came out, I have a new one coming out in a couple of weeks called A Gathering of Men. And that also is about World War II uh, soldiers uh, those who survived as well as those who didn't and so we um, uh, th- that played into some continued interest and in, in, uh, I'm just I think I'm a researcher at heart I probably should be have been a teacher or, <laughs> or something um, because I, I really do spend a lot of time doing research and I love it and so it was a way of both uh, meeting needs I had to complete the research for a book, but also help out for what I think is a great, great effort.
1: So you just recently completed a special project. Can you tell us a little of the details about what that project entitled?
0: Right. Um, besides, as I mentioned, contributing to these group projects, uh, which I enjoy doing and helping see that we get to a certain goal, I also have to challenge myself oftentimes and I decided as I was finding different people from different states, and whether it was D-Day or Pearl Harbor, I thought it would be interesting to try to find the story for one soldier, sailor, marine, um, from all 50 states in the country. So I started doing that. Of course, I had a little Excel spreadsheet. So as I did one for one of our projects, I marked them off. And I realized I was already up to some, I don't know, 30 or so states when I had just been hit and miss and then I thought well why don't I try to do 50 and see what was common between the different states what was different and um, so I I did and I finished one um, soldier from all 50 states now people remind me there were not 50 states during the war (laughs) there were only 48 but there was a Hawaii and there was an Alaska, and I found luckily it, towards the end I found two pe- person from each of those two territories. I guess they were before they became states, but I wanted to include them. So, so yeah, I did. I, I got all fifty states and I patted myself on the back, and, and then I kept going. So,
1: so do you have some stories that stuck out to you um, while you were doing these these all fifty states that you would like to share with us?
0: Yeah, um, there's a couple, and I, I think maybe the first one, which was actually the very first story I did for the for the um, effort, and this was a gentleman, and I'll never pronounce his name, Harold Paffengut, Pfaffengut, P F A F F E N G U T. So strange last name, and I I don't know whether I picked him for that reason or what, but he was with the Navy, uh, a fireman first class, and he was aboard the USS Sturtevant. And um, that ship was sunk in U.S. waters off of Florida very early in the war, um, 1942. And I had never heard of this, and it really was a disaster. So I, I thought that, that piqued my interest. And it uh, turns out that this ship was uh, carrying supplies and had, uh, was coming out of the Gulf of Mexico and hit a minefield that they didn't know was there. And that no one we knew was there. We put the minefield there, and we failed to tell the ship's captain, or it wasn't on the maps he had. You know, just a, a massive um, mistake. And they hit one mine, and the ship was rocking. And they um, they thought it were they they thought it was a submarine or something, and so they were starting to de- drop depth charges, and another um, mine hit. And by this time, the, the ship was sinking, and it did lose 15 men, of which Harold Puffengett was one. And um, I found one was from Georgia, which is the state I'm from, but also, um, and as I say, he was from North Dakota, so it had nothing to do with me. But I, I did look, and at, at that time, I think there were, and it counted just the that day, eight people from eight of the 15 that died, fifth. People from Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Texas, Mississippi, West Virginia, Georgia, Oregon, Indiana, Illinois, and New York, and that started me thinking about: here's a ship, 15 men die, and they were people from all over the country. And you know what? A, what you can imagine what some of the conversations from these young men would have been on these ships. And um, so it was really kind of sad. And um, that that combination of, of having people. Uh, from all walks or at this, at this point from all areas of the country was intriguing to me. So, and, and also an unknown disaster. I mean, I had never heard of it and I thought this was just terrible to have happened. Um, and that ended up, about the time we were doing D-Day, I found a similar instance or incident um, that was called Operation Tiger. And this was a practice exercise for D-Day. So it had, we were practicing um, landing on an island, landing on shore and, and, and getting men to get out of the landing craft in, into shore. And it's called, uh, where they were doing this was off the coast of England, but it was very, very secret because, of course, we didn't want to let people know that we were practicing for the invasion That I think everybody knew was coming anyway, but uh, they were trying to keep it um, secret. It was at Slapton Sands, and so these, um, we, a huge number of people were killed. There was, they were out there in these landing craft, and some German, they call them E-boats, found them or spotted this exercise and began firing on the men. And of course, they had no idea this was supposed to be a you know, peaceful practice, and a panic ensued. And, I mean, even the officers who didn't know what to do, the men. Uh, hadn't had enough practice. And so they all started scrambling. Um, I think it's like today on an airliner. They say, you know, if if we run into a situation, abandon the, you know, get out of the aircraft. Don't go looking for your briefcase or your purse. Well, that's what happened. These men were looking for their duffel bags and many of them drowned. There were 749 people killed in this incident. And they kept it secret for 30 years, I think, after D-Day. Um, it was never revealed what really went on again. So what did they tell the the families? Well, I guess that, you know, they died in combat or in an accident or something, but no one talked about the specifics of this incident because it was still in the lead up to D-Day. And then I guess D-Day happened. And so um, that. You know, we were moving on to invading the continent, and maybe everyone decided we'll just call it part of the invasion. And uh, I don't know what they said, what they described of of their deaths, because now, of course, they're in the records. But again, uh, an incident which accidents precipitated many of the deaths in in the war, but um, certainly none, well, not so many of this scale. And I think this remains one of the um, uh, largest ca- casualties, uh, incidents with casualties in, in the war for us. So. so was that mostly American casualties or was there yes, also? Yes, they were a- all American. I don't know that any of the Germans died because, uh, you know, I, I don't know that our ships would have been armed at that point. These were these little landing craft, I guess, coming off of some main ones or they came under fire, but I don't know that they, um, that we killed any Germans in the process. It's just, uh, uh, And I think there was a general who said, you know, after there was a big inquiry secretly in the Army, Army, Air Force, um, to say, well, what did we do wrong? And one of the gentlemen said, um, officers and NCOs cannot expect their men to remain cool when they themselves seem to go completely crazy. So it sounds like it was uh, completely out of control. And uh, that was was, uh, another reason. So, um, and then, um, I, you know, now I was fascinated with these odd incidents. Uh, I mean, I know we were doing these, as I said, I new Pearl Harbor was coming up, but I'm like, darn, some of these things that people haven't heard of, because that's, to me, um, besides the idea that you're contributing to such a worthwhile effort, I want to learn. I want to find things out that I didn't know. So, um I selfishly said, I'm going to go look for another one of these. And I found an incident, this time it was in Canada, Um, again, early in the war, 1942, where 200 sailors died. We were delivering supplies, uh, bombs and uh, military equipment uh, to a, a base called Argentia in Canada, where I guess we were staging equipment to go overseas. And it was uh there was a winter storm and the the ships uh, again, this is pre pre-radar or pre very very good radar, and radio communications were not what they were. So uh, during this fierce winter storm, uh, one of the two ships, one's called the Truxton and one is the Pollux. And uh, the Pollux was the one carrying the bombs, but the, that ship had some destroyers with it as a convoy, and to protect it, one of the destroyers hit, and then the Pollux hit uh, the rocky shores off of Newfoundland, and they immediately began sinking. And there were other; there was another destroyer, but it was in the middle of the night. And uh, when the townspeople heard about heard the, I guess the shipwreck, or, you know, some people had spotted it, they all came out of their homes and started rescuing. The sailors who were in the sea. And I, I think um, we, we know of, of um, after 9-11, the Canadians in Gander taking our people back and housing them. Well, the same sort of thing happened way before that. They, in you know, the these people had, you know, of course it was Depth of Winter, they might have been prepared, but our soldiers were wet, they were half injured, they repelled them up with ropes from the sea because it was a, a steep cliffs where they hit in these rocks. And um, then, of course, the second ship, as soon as they worked, apparently, all night rescuing these guys. And then the next day, uh, or the next morning, the second ship they found was gone. And they just kept going and rescued many, many of the sailors, even though, as I said, 200 died. So, um, and then people said, well, you know, how can we pay you back? And they, of course, refused any amount of money for, for the work that the, that they had done. And um, So that was... Um, those are the kinds of things that get me excited, and like I said, I learned something, and I've written these stories up. Um, and and not, none of those actually made their way into my book because I'm not really—I wasn't writing about uh, ship disasters or tragedies at sea or major accidents. But again, you never know where some of these um, stories that you find will lead to um, an interesting project or book or article or whatever story. One to- thing
1: that this came to my mind, when you said, you know, they were bringing supplies to Canada and then we would ship it back to, you know, to, to the, you know, Europe where we were at, is that every bomb that we dropped had to be built in America. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and we dropped so many bombs. So we were shipping, there was so much shipping going on. And I don't think like, for me, is just, you know, an amateur lover of World War II history, I don't always think about, oh yeah, like every single tank, tank there, everything was made in America and then brought overseas. That's a long trip. I mean, it's, we maybe made it faster, you know, with diesel engines and stuff, but it's still a long time to get everything over and ships and ship and shiploads. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, I don't think we realize the amount of manpower needed to do one thing in Europe. Like, it, it's just massive. And so because of that, you know, there's gonna be casualties that happen from the really risky things they're doing. And you just don't th- think of that when you think of, oh, this person was killed in World War II. You don't think on a ship hit in Canada. And, you know, like you just don't think about that as even a possibility. <laughs>
0: like, right. Well, that was, um, I think long ago, I, I learned that actually we understood the logistical Effort it was going to take, and we in fact began planning for bringing our men home. It's either January or February '42, right after we entered. I mean, Pearl Harbor is on December 7, 41. We start shipping men over to seas in January, and in February we're understanding that it's going to be a massive effort to get them home, and that was 18 months. You know, people think, okay, the war ended and everyone came home. Well, you have, at the time, I think it was 6 million men. and They don't come home. Like like you say, the, the supplies that went over took forever. Well, it took 18 months to get our men back home after the war. And, you know, we all
1: yeah, and then, you know, those men who are from, like, the, you know, we call the flyover zone, but more of the, you know, internal part of the country, they land, then they got to get a train, then they got to get another train. And then they got to get another train. I remember um, <laughs> I did a, a, one of, I think it was John who shared me a story of how his grandfather got home after the war and that was the hardest part of the war he said because he was he was like in upper new york or something and he was in california so he had to get home from like california to new york and took him two and a half weeks of just jumping train to train to train to train and sleeping in the middle of winter and you know he came back in november in december and this is just a nightmare and people like yeah it's like six million people now need to get from halfway across the world so how are you gonna do that like that's that's true and that's the interesting thing that I love about this project that's so amazing is it takes something that's so complex and makes it so unique on an individual human level and one person's role right you know that you can see this massive thing from the from the view of just one person and I think that's a fascinating way to look at the history lens of history, you know, this is really awesome.
0: And I think that's one reason we, we, all of us who are doing these stories and, and you can find, you know, date of birth where they were maybe buried, but when you find that picture, I mean, it just brings that person alive and you feel this personal connection and you felt like you've discovered them or you found them and they've been lost for all this time and you feel complete. And I, I just hate when I can't find a picture. Uh, so, uh, but, but at least you have the story to, as much as we can construct it when, when that does happen.
1: Do you have some more stories you want to share with us that you've well, dug
0: think, up? Um, from those kinds of stories, um, as my work moved on to, um, uh, my new book, which, uh, is about, uh, men who were with the bomber groups in England Uh, more of my research I I sort of got buried in that and so I thought well while I'm while I'm working with stories behind the stars I might as well concentrate on bombers Um, and and that we were past D-Day then but I began looking at those and and again this this was kind of um uh, my earlier interest of these these mix of people at, from different states. And here I found uh, the B-17 bombers, which I was concentrating on. There were 10 men uh, in an air crew. So in every B-17, and there were thousands, there were 10 men. And looking at, again, 10 men from, they weren't, you know, with a friend or a brother or a cousin. I mean, there, maybe occasionally there were, but it was a, a minority. Um, And I I, um, found one situation. Uh, This was um, Charles Cranmer. He was a first lieutenant B-17 pilot. He was killed in 43. And on his plane was a guy from Pennsylvania, Virginia, Ohio, Louisiana, Texas, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Iowa. So eight different states on his plane. And what was even, and when I, of course, when I decided to research a bomber, uh, that or someone who went down with a bomber, I couldn't just stop with the pilot. I thought, well, you know, I've got the story. I know what happened to this plane. So I have to do these other nine people. So that I was always doing 10 people at a time if all 10 perished. And on this plane, um, there was a their backgrounds there was a rancher, a preacher, an actor, a teacher, two office clerks, and a carpet mill worker. So again, not only were they from different states, their backgrounds, I mean, can you imagine an actor and a preacher and a rancher? Um, What did they talk about? you just wonder about the conversations. And that, I always try to find out what they were uh, on their, um, either their enlistment papers, what their job was before they started, because I thought sometimes there's some really strange occupations. So here on this uh, particular bomber, and um, it was called the Sons of Fury, which I think it's a TV show these days or something like that, but um, they were coming back from a mission uh, into um, France and they were over the water and uh, they were under attack who shot their plane down. The uh, the um, engine was on fire and uh, there was a witness from another bomber who saw the plane go into the water and the, the pilot tried to, I guess, landed as best he could with a, an engine on fire and try to help people uh, preserve the people there. But of course, they were all, uh, the pilot, the co-pilot fell out and they were in the water. And this witness saw that the gunners were still at their stations and firing. Yeah, I guess they knew they couldn't escape or they couldn't survive it. And so they, as the plane went underwater, he said, I just watched the guns still firing below the water. He could just see the, um, the, the bullets go until it, Finally submerged, and um, all the men were killed. I think except maybe one. Uh, and I thought that was just a. I mean, there. These are horrific stories, and when you try to think about what they they went through, but such a tribute to these men who were fighting to the very last. And
1: um, so, again. was this mostly like before it, D-Day invasion? These. This,
0: um, this was after. Yeah. Okay. This, uh, yeah, this was uh, forty. Uh, yeah, in. Well, no, actually, no. This one was. April twenty eighth. So this was before D Day. Yeah. So they were they were doing some missions uh, in at that time into well France and Germany, but this one was over um, parts of France. Mm-hmm.
1: My husband's grandfather flew bombers bombers over in Europe, and he never told us anything. So when the records office opened up again, we'd like to kind of get to see his missions, see what he did. Um, I mean, he died when my husband was six, I think. So he, I mean. He never really knew him, but he didn't really tell anybody. So I imagine like when I did talk to him, he said, I saw horrible things, I don't want to see him again. Like yeah. they were talking about going to Europe as a family and like seeing all the sites there. He's like, I've been there, seen horrible things, I don't want to go again. Yeah. So I imagine like he maybe he saw s- stuff like that happening, you know, and like, you know, just was like oh
0: not want to talk about it or. Well, and that's, that's really um, my new book. It addresses that because we talk about the ACE pilots and people who shot down on Germans and the, you know, the heroes of the war, but we often don't talk about the men who uh, really were disturbed by the things that, that, that caused them not to be able to go on or not be able to deal with it. And that's what I call this gathering of men is these men on these 10 men on a, on a bomber who, Um, have different experiences and everybody has their 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 point where either they can't go on or they go on and they come back and uh, and they don't want to ever talk about it again and uh, you know I don't we think of going to Europe well let's go see the sights so to speak but that's not what they saw and I I can understand how many wouldn't you know that would not be a a pleasant
1: all over the country and and there's all these things but it some part of me thinks that like what would be different if His grandfather had been able to have the resources to work through his, whatever happened to him. He flew quite a few missions. So I know he experienced quite a few things. You know, what would happen if if he could have worked through that in a healthier way other than turning to, you know, substance abuse or other things like that, which are readily available at the time. And you know, and and what would be the difference for my their family, right? And it's there's there's got to be lots of other families who went through the same thing, and we just we don't talk about it, but we live it, <laughs> you know. It's like, and we see the effects of it, but we don't try to like address it and get and get through it or or help our children see, you know, we have these poor traditions in our family, we can change them, but we have to know why we have them, you know. So that's a really cool book that actually helps people see like there isn't just all this, you know, fame and glory and all these things that come from the war. There's some serious consequences and-
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you're not alone. There are many, many families who, uh, for, all, for all the ones that know the stories, there are many who, who have no idea. And I, I hope this research helps some people who might not have had the resources to uh, discover their their heritage and, um others who finally say hey my father wasn't the only one that x happened to and so that that's a really great outcome of all this
1: so so are
0: these 10 men
1: are these just 10 men that you personally been able to contact or know or are they like based off of people in your book
0: yeah um actually yes it is um based on a true story it is my husband's uh, father so my father-in-law who was the b-17 pilot and his crew, and how, as young boys, um, these these men, all they wanted to do was go fly for their country, be a pilot, wear their wings, um, and it looked, sounded great, it was glorious, and um, they went and found out that war was not quite what they imagined and or or expected, and yet they, so many, just day after day after day went on with it, managed to live through very horrible things. And um, so he um, he did not finish his missions. He came home, and we were able, years later, to find some of his crew. Now, this was back in the 90s, I think, when we started looking for them. And we were actually able to connect with two or three uh, men. And then one of the men had uh, the diary or one of the, the sons of one of the men had his diary so that had some information in it um so it was really good to be able to connect with them and hear their story because we didn't know what happened and i can't tell you anymore so you'll just have to read the book
1: <laughs> okay well i'll make sure we get a link in the description the show notes so that everyone can go get the book because it sounds super good and it's super intriguing our alley <laughs> yeah. And that'd be, you know, that's one thing I think people who are doing family research might not know that they can like go find out what unit or what, you know, plane that their ancestor might have served on if they've already passed and didn't tell you. Um they that, that information is available for them to find, right? If I just know his name and service number, right? And then they could in theory try to find the people they served with, yeah, or their ancestors or descendants. so That's really, I think, would be. A kind of cool thing to do if, if you do know that information to to do that. That's so that's amazing. I don't like to me I've never thought oh maybe we should find the, the people that grandpa served with. Oh sure. I just
0: well, never you, thought of that. You know they they're are not that many left um in fact uh, when I started my first book there were a million eight I think living World War II veterans that was in 2016-2017 And when I finished it at the end of December 20, there were 400,000. And I think there were, or there supposedly are, and these numbers are sort of estimates by Veterans Administration, there are only 250,000 left alive today. But the good news is um, not only our site has what we do know and what we have found, there are projects like the Library of Congress's Veterans History Project where they have videotaped Um, survivor, veterans of the war, and they tell their stories. So, and you can search that database. And so these are the men that made it back, but they know many, many stories of those who didn't. And um, they're contactable or or maybe their sons or daughters, but now they know they needed to have kept their records. And so some of them have diaries that maybe, um, you know, uh, someone who's looking for their father or grandfather can't find those people, but they can find the diary that mentions them. Uh, if, if, uh, it almost all it almost takes is knowing what unit they were with, um, whether Army, Navy, whatever. And um, what if they can find the unit, they can almost always find something, even if it's to look at a history book and find out what, where that unit went from what place to what place and what battles they were involved in.
1: Well, I think that would be such a cool thing to do as a, you know, amateur genealogist, those people out there listening to this and just to find your family and make those connections. My grandmother went her brother was killed in World War II on a, a flight over the Pacific, and his entire flight crew was sent home, but he was kept. And so he actually died in Japan. So I mean, it was so, but his flight crew that he had flown, you know, through most of the war actually came and found my, gran- my great grandparents and they all came to visit them and just sit with them and talk to them. And, and I mean, I think that's just kind of cool to see that connection that the flight crews probably had. You know, they were in this small area with just these men for who knows how long, you know, they probably had to like, let's get along because we have to, or, you know, and the the admiration, the respect that they had for my great uncle and, and the love that they had for him and the de- how devastated they were that he didn't come home um you know and they it was probably like five six years after the war was over when they when they reached out to my grandma my great-grandmother
0: you have a book all you have
1: to do now is write yeah right I'll have to go but yeah that's you know that's something I think would be cool to do and then to to, you know talk to um maybe reach out to their descendants and just say hey you know we're all we all they have we have this connection that our my great uncle and your you know, great grandfather served on the, on the same plane together it would be kind of cool to, to find that. So yeah, I have a project on top of all my other projects now.
0: <laughs> well, maybe when we're finished um, with all of our, all of our 400,000, you can, so you can begin your book, but start that yeah. research now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the
1: podcast. This is part one of my interview with Rona Simmons. Come back for part two by subscribing to the podcast, so you know when it drops. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to be consistent with having a podcast every week. Volunteering and, and doing everything is sometimes takes up a lot of time. So hopefully I'll get back to doing weekly episodes, but if you want to know when an episode t- comes, just consider subscribing, and then you'll know right away, you'll be notified. Uh, check out Rona Simmons' book, there'll be a link in the description, and thank you for your time.